2: Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. at
3: School of Humans. Fair warning. This episode starts with diarrhea. Today we're going to hear from someone with the rare distinction of having a vaccine named after them because it's made from their cells. We'll also speak with a vaccine historian who also happens to be a vaccine inventor and who also happens to have written a book about the world's greatest vaccine maker. For My Heart Radio and School of Humans, I'm Sean Raviv, and this is Long Shot. Just saying diarrhea, or anything related to the butt, gets a laugh from me, or my two-year-old. But it's a killer. Hundreds of thousands of kids die from it every year. There's a really serious thing that causes diarrhea, and it's called rotavirus. Rotavirus can give infants and young kids nausea and fever. It can also give them days of watery diarrhea. And if those kids can't get rehydrated, they'll die. Almost every kid in the world under five gets rotavirus at some point. It's everywhere. The question is, how do you stop it? Historically, the answer has been a shit ton of research. Years of trial and error, hits and misses. In the 90s, a team at the U.S. National Institutes of Health merged a human rotavirus strain with a monkey rotavirus strain to create a single vaccine called RotaShield. They did clinical trials in a few countries. Those went really well. The FDA approved RotaShield, and the CDC recommended it for every infant born in the U.S. This was in August 1998. Over the next few months, hundreds of thousands of American infants got at least one dose of RotaShield. And it looked like we finally had a tool to take on this virus that was killing poor children all around the world. It was a huge deal. But then, in late 1999, the CDC withdrew its recommendation of the vaccine. Rotashield had only been used for about nine months. There was no question that the vaccine was effective in stopping rotavirus. But some children who got Rotashield were struck with a rare and dangerous condition called intussusception. It's an intestinal disorder that can be fatal in infants if not treated. There weren't many cases, just a dozen at first, but that was higher than expected based on the clinical trials, and a deeper investigation found even more cases. Still, the risk of getting sick or dying from rotavirus was far greater than the risks of intussusception. But now, American children couldn't even get Rotashield. Even worse, when the CDC withdrew its recommendation, Developing countries across the globe also didn't want to use rotashield, a vaccine that could save 2,000 lives per day, mostly poor children's lives, just stopped being used, and for seven years, rotavirus vaccines disappeared. When we talk about rotavirus, one of the names you have to know is Paul Offit.
4: True, sure, I think any fan of professional roller derby knows who I am. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I am Paul Offit. I'm the director of the Vaccine Education Center at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and a professor of pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine.
3: Paul wears many hats. Doctor, researcher, advocate, writer. Maybe that's why he talks so damn fast. You could say the trajectory of his life was set when he was just five years old.
4: Five years was a rough year for me. I actually uh, inadvertently cut off the tip of my finger, which caused me to go to the hospital. Um, And I I also... uh, ruptured my spleen after falling from a height. And actually, frankly, the pediatrician who took care of me saved my life. I mean, he was willing to come there that night to examine me. I said there is no time and put me in in his car to drive me to the hospital to perform an an, an emergency surgery was performed where a quart and a half of blood was uh, taken out of my abdomen. And I I also uh, was born with clubbed feet. My feet were casted as a child. And then uh, inadvertently or unfortunately, a decision was made to operate on my foot which should never have been done. I mean, the, the clubfoot surgery wasn't perfected until the mid-90s. This was the mid-50s, so we still 40 years to go before we had perfected that operation. And so it was botched because it couldn't help but be botched. There was no way to do that surgery then.
3: After the surgery went bad, five-year-old Paul ended up in a chronic care facility in Baltimore. Back then, it was called the James Lawrence Kernan Hospital and Industrial School of Maryland for crippled children.
4: So I was in that ward, that chronic care facility, for about six to eight weeks. But that was a polio ward. I mean, chronic care facilities in the mid-1950s were
3: polio wards. His mother was sick, and his father was always on the road for his work as a shirt salesman. So Paul spent that time in the polio ward doing nothing.
4: And I just remember sitting in that bed, looking out the window, which looked out onto the front door of that hospital, just waiting for somebody to come rescue me. You know, it's not like there were there was TVs there, there weren't iPads, there weren't play dogs or, you know, pet therapy dogs and stuff. So, you were just lying there for all day and it was it was grim. And I just remember all seeing those children as vulnerable, helpless, and alone. And I think
3: I think that no doubt motivated me to to go into pediatrics. Paul decided to become a pediatrician. He went to med school, started doing research, and then during his residency,
4: When I was a resident, I saw a child die of rotavirus. So it's uh, it um, that was certainly another sort of motivator.
3: He saw a child die of rotavirus, so he started working on a way to stop it.
4: Every year in the United States, before there was a rotavirus vaccine, there would be about uh, uh, 75,000 children that would be hospitalized with rotavirus. Every year, there would be about 60 children that die of rotavirus. Everyone in this country would get rotavirus by the time of five, the age of five. It didn't matter the level of sanitation in the home or the level of of hygiene in the country. It didn't matter. Everybody was infected with that virus by age five. The virus kills 2,000 children a
3: day in the world. In the early 80s, Paul was part of a team that created a rotavirus vaccine with a cow strain. Kind of like how Edward Jenner used cowpox to create a vaccine for smallpox 200 years earlier. But after multiple trials, Paul's rotavirus vaccine didn't work well enough, and they shelved it. Over the next 26 years, he continued working on a rotavirus vaccine, a competitor to RotaShield. It took uh, 10 years to do the research, to to figure out sort of what parts of the virus made you sick,
4: what parts of the virus induced an immune response.
3: 10 years to mix and match, test and retest different rotavirus strains from humans and cows, to narrow down which strains would induce strong immune responses without making a child sick. Paul and his team took a recipe to a few pharmaceutical companies to help pay to continue the research and test it.
4: Then it was a 16-year research of development effort, meaning prove that each of those strains needed to be in there, prove that you had not too much or too little of each of those strains, have the right buffering agent, the right stabilizing agent, the right
3: vial, to do all of that work. Then it was phase one, phase two, phase three trials, progressively larger and larger studies to prove that the vaccine is safe and effective. That's 16 more years. And it ended in, in a so-called phase three trial, a
4: prospective, placebo-controlled, 11-country, four-year, $350 million trial to prove that the vaccine worked and was safe so 26 years.
3: The vaccine that resulted from those 26 years is called Rotatec. It's owned by the pharmaceutical giant Merck. The phase 3 trial for Rotatec that Paul mentioned was the biggest clinical trial in the history of vaccine development, or any drug development. They tested the vaccine in 11 countries on three continents and in nearly 70,000 infants. In January 2006, they published the results. The vaccine seemed to cause no additional risk of intussusception, that rare intestinal disorder. Also, the vaccine worked and worked really well. It cut hospitalizations and ER visits from rotavirus by 95%. A month later, both the CDC and FDA gave Rotatech the thumbs up. So I figure maybe at least 3 million
4: children every year since 2006. So
3: certainly tens of millions, and
4: in the world, hundreds of millions of children have received this vaccine.
3: So so it's not just in the U.S., they're getting it uh, all over the world.
4: That's right. More than 100 countries have licensed that product.
3: Rotavirus vaccine is one of more than a dozen vaccines that the CDC recommends for every American kid. And what about the other 13? Where did they come from? Believe it or not, most of them were made by one man.
2: Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. at t
3: It was about 1 o'clock in the morning when Geraldine Hilleman woke up with a sore throat. She was 5 years old.
5: You know, March 1963 was when I got mumps, and I do remember it, maybe because throughout my life it was made to be so important, but it was one of those moments where you wake up in the middle of the night and you go to your parents' room because you feel sick, and that's not really a big deal. But I remember waking Dad up and saying, I feel sick, describing what was going on. He instantly turns on the light and grabs the Merck Manual, and the Merck Manual was a very large book, about three inches thick. It was kind of back then what google is today anything you want to look up about disease symptoms treatments and so forth uh, was in the merck manual so he looks it up and he's reading about mumps because he instantly suspects i had mumps and that was of course very exciting to him because he was working very hard to develop a vaccine my name is jerry Hilliman, also known as gerald lynn hilleman and uh, i live in palo alto california And uh, I am the daughter of Maurice Hilleman, who uh, was a wonderful man, but also particularly known for his work developing, I think, about 40 vaccines.
3: Geraldine's father, Maurice Hilleman, did develop more than 40 vaccines. He's the greatest vaccine inventor in history. He played a part in, or single-handedly developed, most of the vaccines that we get today. Measles, rubella, hepatitis A, hepatitis B, meningococcus, Hib, streptococcus, chickenpox, he made them all. Paul Offit crossed paths with Maurice Hillman during his work with vaccines. And he was in awe of the man and his accomplishments, which had gone relatively unrecognized considering their impact. So in 2004, Paul asked if he could sit down with Hilleman and take down his stories. In uh,
4: October of 2004, he was diagnosed with disseminated cancer, uh, which was not operable and, and he was given about uh, 6 months to live and lived in fact 6 months he died in April the following year and i thought you know here's all this this amazing man who has these amazing stories to tell and all those stories were going to die with him and i just asked him if he would be willing to let me come you know at least at least once a week and hopefully twice a week to just interview him to sit in his office and interview him i knew how hard it was to um, do the research and development to on one vaccine. The notion that he had essentially done that for nine vaccines was like trying to imagine
3: kind of a different dimension. Paul wrote a book about Hilleman's life based on those conversations. It's called Vaccinated. He also worked on a documentary called Hilleman. It's directed by Donald Mitchell, who's letting us use some clips from the many hours he spent interviewing Hilleman, who was 85 years old at the time.
4: Um, So, why don't we start there, just to have you introduce yourself to me, and just tell me, you know, briefly, uh, you know, what you've done.
6: Mm -hmm. Well, I'm uh, Maurice Hilleman. i had a long career in science, about 60 years,
3: and uh, I'm right. Maurice Hilleman was born in 1919, during the Spanish flu epidemic. He grew up working at the family farm in Montana.
6: I think that was the luckiest thing that could happen to anyone to be born on a farm on the western frontier. We had a blacksmith shop, we had a machine shop, plants, nursery stock, and so forth. My, one of my jobs was to take care of the chickens.
3: Lots of vaccines are grown in chicken eggs, including the annual flu shots, and a bunch of Hilleman's vaccines. So his childhood experience raising chickens helped bring several vaccines to the world, like the measles vaccine.
6: In my career, chickens were my best friend uh, because I used them for so many types of experimentation, and they were breakthrough experiments. I grew to like chickens. (laughs) Stupid, you know, but I felt that I owed them a debt.
3: Hilleman had a twin sister who died during her birth. Two days later, his mother died from eclampsia. And Hillman told Paul that he nearly died many times as a kid from disease, drowning, dodging trains. But somehow, he always recovered. In high school, he worked at a J.C. Penney. He thought that might end up being his career. But he was smart, and one of his brothers told him he should go to college. He got a scholarship from Montana State University and then a Ph.D. in microbiology from the University of Chicago. But virology, the study of viruses was still a brand-new field with more questions than answers.
6: And I gave the first course in virology given in the United States, lab and lecture, no textbook. In
3: 1944, he went to work for E.R. Squibb & Sons. That's where he developed his first vaccine. It was for Japanese encephalitis, a disease spread by mosquitoes that can cause brain inflammation. Hillman's work on Japanese encephalitis was for the U.S. military which needed the work done right away. They converted a horse barn into a laboratory and production facility. And the process for creating the vaccine was pretty gross. Skip forward a couple minutes if you don't want to hear descriptions of dead animals.
6: What it really amounted to was to inoculate mice with a needle into the head and uh, to wait about three days before when they developed an acute encephalitis and the virus was at its greatest level in the brain.
3: Okay, here's where it gets really graphic.
6: Then we would just take these mice and snap them around the forceps and cut the skin off and sterilize it and pop off the skull with the scissors and scoop out the brains, which then had to be chopped up. And that was done in the Fred Waring's blender. You remember, he developed that for, to mix his cocktails
3: Fred Waring was a famous singer from the 1920s to the 1950s. As a side gig, he backed and promoted the first electric blenders. Jonas Salk, famous for inventing a polio vaccine, he also used the Waring blender.
6: Invariably, they would leak and the virus would come out through the
3: bearing at the bottom. 30 women spent three months blending 30,000 mice brains a day. Altogether, they blended enough brains to vaccinate 600,000 American troops. Okay, no more on mice brains, but there is a bit more grossness ahead. After Squib, Hillman went to work at Walter Reed Army Medical Center. One day, he was sent out to an army base in Missouri to investigate a flu outbreak. For whatever reason, he couldn't get live throat samples. So he did the next best thing. He went to the morgue.
6: I said, "Look, I got this awful problem." And uh, the fellow said, "Well, he said, "I have a body here from a soldier." who uh, died four hours ago, what do you want? And I said, well, I'd like to have his trachea. So I went over to the morgue and waited for him to carve out the trachea, wrapped it up in newspaper, brought back the lab, cut it open, and started chopping out tissue. Some days, you know, everything just goes right.
3: (laughs) Hilleman cultured cells from the recently dead man's trachea and grew virus from them. And in the process, he helped discover adenoviruses, a family of viruses that we all get and that have become very relevant today. Adenoviruses are used as a delivery system for some of the COVID vaccines, like AstraZeneca's and Johnson & Johnson's. After Walter Reed, Hillman went to the research lab at Merck, the pharmaceutical giant. When he arrived at Merck, a man named Vannevar Bush was the chairman of the board. He was one of the people who started the Manhattan Project.
6: He said, You know, I got an idea that one day these, these things called viruses are going to be important. I really believe that. And he said, I want you to set up a laboratory that will be second to none in the world to study virology. And my vision was that, first of all, I wanted to conquer the pediatric diseases of children measles, mumps, rubella, chickenpox, to discover the viruses of hepatitis. Hepatitis A and Hepatitis B. And then I was interested in cancer for its cause and control. And there was a late entry of the bacterial diseases, vaccines against pneumococcus, meningococcus, haemophilus influenzae.
3: The years after World War II are known as the golden age of vaccinology. But as one writer put it, it might be more accurate to call it the Hilleman period. Hilleman's vaccines save millions of lives every year. He also made vaccines for animals. Hilleman was amazing at making vaccines, particularly live, attenuated vaccines. They're made by weakening a pathogen by passing it through chicken eggs or live animals or tissue culture. The idea is to give the virus to some other living thing and hope it comes out on the other end with less potency. Paul Offit, Hilleman's biographer, explains. And it's not
4: like there was a, a, a book on how to weaken viruses. I mean, you just kind of made it up. You tried to pass viruses in cells which the virus normally didn't grow in. So that that kind of introduced a series of blind genetic alterations in that virus. So to making it weaker and weaker to grow in the cells it normally grows in. And so you would try it. You would pass it a certain number of time in these, these other cells, whether it was human kidney cells or monkey kidney cells or monkey testicular cells or whatever was being used, chick embryo fibroblast cells or mouse embryo fibroblast cells. And then you would go back and put it into adults and then younger adults and then older adolescents and then children to make sure that it was, was weak enough, but not too weak. And it was always a, um, just a trial and error thing. And it was, he had a real green thumb for that. I mean, to make the measles vaccine, to make the mumps vaccine, to make the first German measles vaccine, to make the chickenpox vaccine, that was all Maurice. And he he just had a green thumb for, for attenuating viruses.
3: Maybe the most amazing green thumb story goes back to 1963, when Hilleman's daughter, Geraldine, got sick.
5: So he looks it up and he's reading about mumps because he instantly suspects, I had mumps. And That was, of course, very exciting to him because he was working very hard to develop a vaccine.
6: You know, when you're going after this attenuation or weakening of the virus, uh, you go and you take a specimen from a patient. Now, those viruses that are traveling around in the human population are not all alike. There are many different what are called clades, And you have to find the right clade that is going to allow you to attenuate appropriately.
3: The word clade can be a bit confusing, but it's basically one step down from a strain. Two clades of a virus come from the same ancestor.
6: And the right virus was right in my house. (laughs) My daughter, Gerald Lynn, came in one night and she says, look, Dad, oh, my God, she had a throat like this. So I said, get back into bed. i go up to the lab. It was about 1 in the morning, got specimen collecting things, brought them back, took throat swabs, took them back to the lab and froze them. So now I had specimens out of Geraldine, my daughter. We isolated the virus and went into attenuation. Boy, this one went just like
3: that. So Hilleman created a vaccine for mumps, using the swab from little Geraldine's throat.
6: Actually, my other daughter, Kirsten, was about one year old at the time that we had the vaccine coming along. And a picture was taken of Gerald convincing her sister that she ought to take the vaccine. Gerald says, it it won't hurt. She says, like hell. (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> Here's Gerald Lynn again.
5: The name of the vaccine is the Gerald Strain. It's on all of the boxes and package inserts that come out. So I have had the pleasure throughout my life of also being called Miss Mumps, and uh, usually by pediatricians.
3: <laughs> Gerald Lynn never saw it herself, but she told me that even at the end of her father's life, he kept a list in his pocket of all the diseases he wanted to tackle.
6: Well, before vaccines, essentially 100% of the children became infected with all of these. Measles, mumps, and essentially rubella were ubiquitous. These diseases have essentially disappeared.
3: That must be, uh, for you, very satisfying to think about those that's not birds of people.
6: Well, yes, it is. But, you know, for a scientist, it's the winning that counts. <laughs> it's like climbing mountains, you know. And you get up here, and you get up to the top of this one, you got a couple more that you're trying to climb up at the same time. Looking back on one's lifetime, you say, gee, what have I done? Have I done enough for the world to justify having been here, you know? That's a big worry. And I would say I'm kind of pleased about all this. I'm not smug about it, but I'm pleased I would do it over again because there's a great joy in being useful. And uh, that's the satisfaction that you get out of it. Other than that, it's the quest of science and winning a battle over these damn bugs, you know?
2: Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T.
3: When RotorShield was pulled off shelves, it changed the way vaccine trials were run. Nobody wanted to see another rare adverse event like intussusception slip through the cracks though later findings questioned whether Rotashield even caused one. In any case, vaccine safety trials ever since have become larger and more informative. That includes the COVID vaccines. Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca, Pfizer, Moderna, and others around the world have all been amongst the largest clinical trials in history. Vaccines have come a long way since Maurice Hilleman was somehow making them with blenders and corpses and saving millions of lives in the process. Paul Offit, who worked with and wrote about Hilleman and invented a vaccine, is also on the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee. That's the committee that recommended the approval of the current COVID vaccines for emergency use.
4: Maurice Hilleman said it best, I never breathe a sigh of relief until the first 3 million doses are out there. Well, the first 100 million doses are out there and it doesn't cause a serious side effect. It's amazing. I mean, I can't, this is like one of the best vaccines ever made in terms of its effectiveness, in terms of its safety, and, and, it was, and in terms of the speed with which it was made. I, I, it's just, I keep
3: waiting for the other shoe to drop on these vaccines and it hasn't happened. On the next episode of Longshot, we're going to hear from a scientist who figured out how to make a coronavirus vaccine two years before coronavirus struck. And in the process, we'll learn what the hell a spike protein is. Longshot is a production of School of Humans and iHeartRadio. Today's episode was produced, written, and narrated by me, Sean Revive. My co-producer is Gabby Watts. Executive producers are Virginia Prescott, Brandon Barr, and L.C. Crowley. Special thanks to Noel Brown at iHeartRadio and to vaccine inventor Stanley Plotkin. An extra special thanks to Paul Offit, author of Vaccinated, One Man's Quest to Defeat the World's Deadliest Diseases, and Donald Rain Mitchell, director of Hilleman, A Perilous Quest to Save the World's Children. Fact-checking for this episode was done by Adam Long Longshot was scored by Jason Shannon. The score was mixed by Vic Stafford. Sound design and audio mixed by Harper Harris with TuneWelders.
6: School of Humans.